Hi guys, welcome to the podcast. So this is an episode that's been a long time in coming. We recorded it a while back, um, Chris and I, like June 2018. So it has been on the back burner for a little while. Um, I think it's really relevant at the moment because we are talking about doping in judo. So I'm sure most of you will know that there's been a recent failed drugs test by... The Brazilian um, Olympic champion Rafaela Silva. Um, so we're, we're talking into about doping. We're talking about doping in judo. So a, a lot of time has passed since the recording, and I guess even more as well since I was competing. So I'm sure that quite a bit has changed. Like one thing I know is that the IGF is a little bit more transparent. There's a list of athletes who've received bans um, for doping on their site. I do hope it's not too much conjecture on my behalf. We did do some research, um, but some was my own experiences and from conversations with other coaches as well. Um, I know Chris did some research research too. Uh, If you are looking for something that's a little bit more in depth, maybe a little bit more insightful, more knowledge uh, around doping in sport, there's loads of great podcasts out there. Um, one I recommend is the Science in Sport podcast with Ross Tucker, uh, for one. So yeah. Anyway, Dave Roman talks a bit about the situation with Silver on his podcast, and talks about how he doesn't want to see her banned. That he just wants to see the best athletes fight the best. Um, personally, I think this raises a lot of complicated issues. I think. Or or, or better, I I don't think athletes can be allowed to dope because of the dangers that it can entail to those outside of the system. So for me, I guess, hypothetically, if doping is allowed because of the potential impact it can have at the top level, everyone then has to dope and everyone then begins doping because they need to make it a level playing field. So who doesn't want to be stronger, faster, fitter? Um... It's all well and good if you're within the system and you're hopefully getting that right kind of medical support to effectively dope safely. But then how do you, as an athlete outside the system, break into it? Um, There's not really any checks in place to then support those up-and-coming athletes, those youth athletes who are needing to make safe decisions about doping, uh, especially if they're on the outside and they're not getting that safety net and and the guidance known but they they know that to reach the top level they effectively have to dope um before you say that this couldn't happen you've only got to read interviews with dopers from you know sports like sprinting um cycling a couple of examples are david miller or Dwayne chambers both talk about it in their autobiographies uh and they acknowledged that they started doping because they felt that they couldn't compete as everyone else was on something. Anyway, listen to the show. I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, we're recording this during the, or recording the intro. I'm going to release it during the Paris Grand Slam. So hopefully we'll have five minutes, ten minutes on that next week. Um, enjoy the show, guys. So taking a bit of a different turn today we're going to talk about doping in judo um drugs in drugs in sport is obviously a huge issue at the moment 
if you've not heard about doping in cycling or athletics, I don't know where you've been. The obviously stuff in cycling seems to be ongoing at at the moment. That they've they've had massive massive problems, and it doesn't seem to be getting any any better. But you know, other sports are affected as well. The tennis, weightlifting. There's constantly rumours about football. Um, so I wanted to ask: Is doping a factor in judo? You know, is as a sport, is is judo immune to the impact of doping? That's absolutely huge, isn't it? You know, and I think um, I think if we come down to the essence of sports and about being fair play and about kind of um, striving to achieve and be the best that you you, you can, it gets so confusing, doesn't it? Because um, judo is underpinned by its moral code. Um, but it's also we then start to put humans into the mix um, you know, once you start to put humans into the mix anything can happen really um, because although it's underpinned by all these wonderful values I think we are kidding ourselves if we think judo is immune um, I think as within all sports it's open to corruption as within all sports it's open to cheating. One way of doing that is via doping. Um, I think for me, the, the weight control nature of the sport makes it um, a little bit a little bit more difficult to dope. Um, and also, the the kind of the benefits of doping are quite difficult to achieve within judo. Really, you know, in terms of um, you know you. you for building the muscle mass you've got it because of the weight categories um, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think it doesn't exist um, and I think for it to exist it would need to be um, as part of an organised system I don't think individuals have, would be able to dope um, to a great level on their, on their own um, without additional supports um, but here we are, you know, we, we know that this history with it within the sport of it, but actually the prevalency isn't so high. Um, I don't know what your thoughts, James. Uh, again, I think the IGF are trying to make judo a spectator-friendly sport, um, and they're doing a great job, but I think with spectators comes money, and they are investing more and more money into the sport, but with money you know, you, you just add more and more value, I guess. Not value, value's not the right word. Um, but you, the importance of winning becomes kind of changed, I guess, when there's there's money involved, you know. I, I often say about football, um, I often say, if, if I ever have a conversation about doping in football, um, I often argue why wouldn't they dope? The, the chances for those guys of being caught because there's so much money involved, you know, why wouldn't they want to be fitter, stronger, faster, more able to perform at a high level for a longer period? Because the financial rewards are so great and the potential penalties, particularly for football, is so low. Um, and, I, and I think you're starting to, you, you potentially see that in judo as well. Um, and I, it might sound harsh, but you might see it more in countries where they value 
a gold medal in judo a little bit more. Um, potentially some of the countries where you might get um, money for Olympic medals. Um, and, yeah. it, you know, it doesn't mean that our system's immune. You've only got to look at our rumours around some of our cyclists, um, potentially some of our past athletics medalists, those those rumours, to, to see that, you know, British sport certainly isn't immune. Um, but I do think judo might not be aware that it has a problem you know and I think it is something that's interesting to talk about um, I think off the top of your head can you I say off the top of your head I know you've done a bit of research I've done a bit of research but before you looked into it um, was there anyone that kind of stood out to you for having been caught and banned or been punished for doping I think for me there was three um Key, well, I'm going to say four key figures actually. Um, it's kind of like a three plus one. Um, first of all, um, Kerith Brown, um, two time Olympic medalist, one at the Olympic Games, I think it was Seoul, um, get, gets caught on a diuretics um, aspect, has his, has his medal stripped from him. Um, I'm aware. Um, having spoken to some people who were involved in that, that Olympic Games, not not from judo, actually judo and wrestling, um, that there was a lot of talk around that time in terms of Kerry being a being a fall guy in many ways. Um, for yeah, for uh, in effect with the ginseng, um, and that it was a bit of a trade off. It was a bit of a trade off. So whether whether that's true or not, you know, but kind of what's behind that. But ultimately, Kerith has his medal stripped from him, um, fails on a diuretic, and this is kind of within a re- you know the, the the substance of the diuretic was was banned, and then quite soon afterwards, the Olympic Games comes up, which was where that Kerith, Kerith gets pulled up, loses his medal. So that was my first one. Um, the Second one, and we spoke about it earlier, but it kind of went when you, as soon as you said it, it kind of like, oh, of course, it was Boras yeah. um, and the the Nandrolon, um, uh charge that he got. Now, I think you, you you mentioned to me that he was a world world silver medalist, but was able to keep hold of his medal, um, for, but still received a ban. Um, you know, Boras, you look at him, the most arrogant man in world judo at the time. Um, I was in Atlanta and was shocked when I read on the screen that he beat Colga in the Olympic final. It just devastated me. You know, I'd seen Yanzi throw him on his head at the um, Stade de Coubertin. And you just yeah. think, oh, I really, you know, I hate Burras. And he, and he thrived on that, didn't he? But <laughs> then when he came out as being a Nandrolong cheat, kind of just made everyone hate him even more. Um and then I think my, my third one was uh, Wen Tong. Um, I'm a big fan of Wen Tong's, believe it or not. I, I think her her match against uh, Sukada in the final of the Beijing Olympics was actually my favourite match in that Olympic Games, and I was there every single day. Um, and that was a final match. Um, it was just my highlight, really. And I was a follower. She got a real nasty... Um, Niwa's a turnover. I spoke with Karina Bryant about uh, about the turnover that she, she did. She said, Chris, it's phenomenal. You either go over or it breaks your spine. 
Oh, wow. And then she gets pulled on clenbuterol. And she blames pork as being, you know, being um, contaminated with clenbuterol. And, you know, kind of the wadder have got a bang to rights, apart from they've destroyed a bee sample. So they couldn't test the bee sample because actually the appeals process didn't allow for it. So she got off with it, and it's just an embarrassment of the of the um, the, the system as a whole. Olympic gold medalist gets found with clenbuterol in a system, blames pork, can't test the bee, the bee sample because actually they thought they'd had a bang to right, so they destroyed it. What a set of imbeciles! And then you finally. Oh, sorry, carry on. Sorry, no, you you tell me you come. I was going to say, you, you, you say that, but um, do you remember the, the Spanish investigation um, into to cycling where they discovered uh, a, a team doctor with a load of, of blood samples in his fridge? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, he, reading up about it recently, I, I posted a couple of articles on Twitter, Um he has often claimed that he had a lot of blood samples from footballers at the time, um, but their samples were destroyed. And he offered in court to give names of the individuals, and the judge told him that he would be in breach of kind of doctor-client confidentiality. You know, so it's not only yeah, maybe that IOC or WADA who are perhaps a little too quick um there's there's a lot of people out there who are making decisions that perhaps aren't in the best interest of sport or perhaps aren't in the best of interest of clean sport if if that makes sense yeah no absolutely absolutely uh, kind of um it, it comes with the territory i suppose it comes with the territory the the fourth one I was going to say was Nick Del Popolo. Um, tweeted Nick earlier this week. Um, he hadn't responded. Nick, if you're listening, happy to appear to respond. But when you get um, caught with cannabis in your system, and the reason that you gave is, you know, uh, chocolate brownies and that had been spiked, I think, oh, you know, post-Olympic Games, you've been caught, really, is... is, is is a thing, and, and you know he's subsequently banned. Um, but he's done well to to make his way back into back into judo, um, and he, he fought well in um, the subsequent games in in Rio, and he's and he's doing well at the moment. I've seen he's he's actually taken some decent scalps recently as well. But I'm, I am interested in how frequent he's tested now. Now that he's failed a drug test, yeah, and I think. Potentially, his um, his case kind of suggests that there's maybe two two kinds of of I guess failure there. You've got you, you've you've got potentially recreational drugs, and then you've got um, doping. And there is a reason that marijuana is on the, the doping list. You know, it, it has performance enhancing effects in terms of it helps you calm your nerves. Um, it also 
has potentially harmful effects. I think there's to be on the the the, the wider ban list. There's there's three categories it's got got to fall into. It's got to be um, performance and it's got to fall into two of three categories. It's either performance enhancing, impact on your health, um, and I can't remember the third category. But um, I think the argument is that marijuana falls into those two categories and that's why it's on the ban list um, in competition out of competition so when you're not at competition it's not not on the list um, you know so you, you leave the Olympic Village and you can eat as many brownies as you want but for that two week period where you're in London it's you know brownie free zone it's a brownie free zone, that's right. And he's come out after the event, I think, and he's talked about how he's embarrassed by making the mistake and it was an accident. He didn't know that that's what they were. But even so, you need to you need to be aware of of, of, of that kind of thing, certainly. It's funny, isn't it? I was speaking with a, a colleague today who had been on some drugs training, you know, like uh, not how to take drugs, but about the dangers, the education and the law and safety with regards yeah. to and it was specifically in regards to cannabis and they were speaking about um this colleague shared a personal experience that she'd been made um some space cakes and kind of had been spiked and she didn't know until she till she got home, um, having drove home and under the influence of of, uh, of space cakes and kind of didn't realise that, that, that they'd been contaminated themselves. So up until probably about six hours ago. Um, I wasn't believing as uh, Nick. I wasn't sure. I didn't know um, because oh, okay. I've, had a, I've had a colleague say exactly the same thing. You know, I didn't know. I just went down it, couldn't smell it, couldn't taste it, but it did affect her. Wow. Okay. So I did uh, I did a little bit of research, and I know you did as well. Um, and there are a few quite significant... I guess doping cases in judo. Um, there's not many. It's not as rampant as cycling, but there are a few. There's only been two athletes ever stripped of medals from the Olympics. So you obviously had uh, Kerith in in '88 um, from his sole bronze medal. Um, but there's a Mongolian way back in 1972. Uh, Munich Games was stripped of a, of a of bronze as well. And there was wow. another failed test in 1996. I think it was the Cuban girl, but she was allowed to keep her silver medal. And again, it was for a diuretic there. And then, then much more recently, Irakli Tsurikidze, yeah, Georgian Olympic champion. In 2013, he was banned for two years for doping. But what was interesting in that case was his coach was interviewed after the matter. And his coach had admitted that he'd been caught and punished previously for doping as well you know so yeah. Yeah. I thought that was quite interesting um, you clearly know who Sharapova is you big yeah. tennis fan huge um, tennis fan <laughs> and I she's obviously open as we speak um, <sighs> Williams well she withdrew before replaying Sharapova didn't she after, yeah. after 18 straight, straight defeats well, Sharapova is also just back from a ban from having used meldonium, which was legal 
on a TUE, I think, and then became banned over the space of Christmas, and she was caught still using it in the January. Then right. in, yeah, and then in 2016, there were four judo players, again, similarly, who were all caught for the same reason. Um, and I don't think any of them face bans. Um, yeah, no, Pumier, some high level, still some high level, I was going to say, some high level ones there, wasn't they? Who are those, did you say? Puliev, Yartsev, Yartsev, um, I'm going to butcher this name, Kondrick Traver. Yeah. And I think Valkova as well. I think they've all been to uh, to Olympic Games. When you look uh, at Puliev and Yartsev, they're top draw players, aren't they? Phenomenal, you know. Um, yeah, again, there were Russian athletes implicated by the McLaren report that was that was done following the, the, the Russian doping scandal in the run-up to Rio, but obviously the IGF backed athletes, Russian athletes to compete, you know, so you had a full Russian why do, team Why do you there. think that was? I mean, I don't know. I Russia are so strong and they were so strong in London, you know, the three Olympic champions, was it five or six Olympic medals? Ooh. It's... Um, and again, Putin is a, a judo player, and he's, I think, at the time, was the honorary president of the IGF. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's not a impactful role, but he, he, he clearly um, supports judo. So I, that, I'm not saying that did play a factor, but I think there's a huge political will there, isn't there? Where other sports have yeah. chosen to ban Russia as a country, um, but when we look at the um, Mario Caesar and um, Shestakov, who um, you know, with the, with the partnership with Putin involved, you just kind of go. The IGF were never going to say Russia are banned. No, but I think it's difficult for the IGF because they they have a lot of links. Now, the Paralympics, the Paralympic Committee came out and banned the Russian team. Um, not just for judo, but for all sports. Whereas for the Olympics, you could argue maybe it should have been a decision made by the IOC yeah. at the bequest of, of WADA. And that's you know, where they it, isn't it? The, 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 yeah. they put the onus on the sports to ban. And actually, you know, the, yeah. the political will and the, and the clout isn't there to do that. Definitely. And and on top of that, there's been several other like high-profile cases, but the most interesting one, I think, is uh, Olympic champion from 2016, Kel Mendy. Mm-hmm. Mm. You're talking about the, um, the, the drug test or non-drug test in Paris. The non-drug test in Paris, yeah. Um, where she, you know, drug testers turned up, it was unscheduled, it wasn't expected, um, but she refused to take a test. And obviously she became the, the focal point, I guess, of a couple of articles, um, as she was the biggest name to refuse to take the test. But I don't think she was the only one to refuse. I think there were a couple of other athletes, you know, of decent calibre there who also refused because the tester apparently didn't have any wider ID. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, was, was, you know, um, so going, again, it's really... And that, this is the rationale, isn't it? Like, for not taking that test. Because when, when you when you be objective in relation to this, um, if you as an athlete 
um, somebody didn't have the right accreditation and wanted to take your urine or your blood, um, are you expected to just give that without having the valid credentials that go with it? Because they're, those athletes are going to say, wow, this, this is a planned conspiracy to I contaminate my blood. <laughs> You're getting on. You're getting in deep there. Conspiracy theories. I imagine you know she would have the the she the drugs tester would have been there with French you know ID. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is this is the thing from what I understood from it was actually um, there isn't so WADA um, is a an association of drug testing agencies from across the world, yeah. um, and that. There is no onus on one country to recognise another country's um, drug testing regime. Um, oh wow! Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I think this is where the difficulty. So it's it, because WADA. I don't think WADA. So it's UK anti-doping will come and yeah. test the UK athletes, and under a WADA event, you know, an event that is sanctioned by WADA, UK anti-doping will do the drug test on behalf of WADA. Yeah, but in, okay. Out of competition, is UK anti-doping turning up to a training camp and they can ask to test international athletes, but international athletes don't have to give their consent. Is that right? That's my understanding of it. Um, just wow, through reading okay. some of the Guardian articles and things like that, really. Um, it's kind of, that's right. the rationale um, on why there's been no penalty for that. Okay. One of the things that I was surprised by is that punishments that were had been implemented, you know, it seems so difficult for them to be imposed and then on top of that to survive like appeals. So obviously you had Boras, um his medal was stripped but his ban was overturned, so I don't think he ended up having a ban. Um you obviously had Charlene Van Snick who I th- think was banned for um, cocaine having a cocaine metabolite in her system but again she won her appeal um, and I know in that case uh, you know she felt she, she'd been sabotaged by an ex-entourage member who had one of her, her entourage um, so she lost her medal but she won appeal against the ban and she subsequently um, I think there was a criminal complaint against the individual, you know, so that's a little bit deeper, but it did seem that there were a lot of cases where it was so difficult for doping agencies to implement a ban that wasn't then overturned by, by CAS, which is the the court of arbitration. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Wen Tong is the the other one, you know, banned and then won her appeal um, and had a world title reinstated. And this is about because the, of the process and the litigation system yeah. and the, the the quality of recording and the quality of, of evidence that is, you know, people think they've got, but actually often fall short. And it's that, that due, due diligence, isn't it, in, in terms of the role of yeah. the drug testers. So does, does... Do drugs have an impact on judo? And... Clearly, there's been some high-profile athletes, but judo as a match, one-to-one, does it have an impact? What do you think? Ah, <sighs> hmm. oh, 
James, I'll say, yes, I do. Yeah. I think I think if you've got two athletes where things are other otherwise equal, the substance using athlete will prevail. Agreed. I think I think it's so easy to assume that because judo is is you know relatively a skill sport, you know, similar to to football when you compare it to a cycling or athletics which are based on power and your your physical output mm-hmm. um it's easy to assume that and I think it's an arrogance on behalf of the athletes as well my skill can overcome any you know performance enhancing aspects that someone else might have I think if you were talk to an athlete I think they might say uh drugs cheats should be out and out banned and they'd be quite vocal about that but I wonder if in judo they'd be quite so vocal I wonder if you get more athletes who'd shrug and say you know what I'll beat them anyway you know because of their belief in their own skill you know and and clearly that's uh, a silly thing to say because being stronger and fitter being able to deliver your skill level for longer which is the impact of you know a lot of modern drugs um, and a lot of modern doping methods um, it's massively beneficial well it's huge and, and you look at the prevalency of um, kind of substances within MMA and that you know in comparison to judo oh. it's huge isn't it um, but you look at kind of like um, the impact that growth hormone has um, in terms of yeah. reducing weight um, increasing muscle mass it's you know what what conditions if you were the dope sorry if one was a doping athlete, what would one have to do to get through the system successfully, I think? Oof. And that, for me, That's, yeah. time away. Yeah. Um, come out of competition cycle. Or be doping prior to going into competition cycle. So you've got your bedrock there. Um, a junior athlete, for example... Um, whether that's via EPO or you know, and kind of, I wonder what the impact of EPO would be within within the judo world. It, you know, it does cross over thresholds, doesn't it, in terms of um, anaerobic anaerobic. I wonder what the impact of growth would be. Um, you know, it, it, so what conditions would you need if you were the doping athlete? What would you need to do? I think you've you've kind of <laughs> we're now talking about the ideal situation for doping. This is not these are not recommendations, and I have absolutely no idea. But you'd imagine that you with methods where you're trying to build blood passports now, which is what you can doping are doing. I, I think it would be really difficult unless you <laughs> were doping from an early age. This is how you can beat the testers, guys. Um, this is not what we're trying to do, but. Um, I, I mean, I I don't know. So I, obviously, I was um, tested for for quite a while in the run up to, well, as, as part of the British team, and then in the run up to London Olympics. Um, what was your regime like from um, you down to doping? You know, so I was I was on the whereabouts system. Do you know? Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I had a couple of um, was it, I think Peter Cousins prior to Beijing. Uh, had a scrape, I think it was Peter, but yeah, um, had a scrape with the whereabouts system alongside 
pristine and really good, to my understanding. But what tell us about about that, James? Yeah, so so whereabouts essentially you have to let UK anti-doping know and I assume it's a similar similar system across the world you have to let them know where you are for one hour every day um, now that's not that difficult when you think about it because at 6am I know I'm going to be in bed or at 10pm I know I'm going to be in bed for the next hour you know um, and you choose the hour so for me I was always training at 10 so I always put 6am I'll be in bed um, and you have to update it for whenever you go away. So you have to account for one hour of every day of the year. Um, and drugs testers can turn up at random during that hour. And they can they can turn up at other times um, as well. But if, if they turn up at other times and you're not there, it's no consequence. But if they turn up during that hour and you are not where you're meant to be, it, it counts as a missed test, and you get three missed tests before it counts as a doping violation, and um, you know that's when you potentially could receive a ban. Um, I did end up getting, I think, two missed tests, and then you, you yeah, I think after one missed test, I was super careful um, because it's really easy to miss it. It is it's stupidly easy to miss a drugs test. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and the missed tests only carry over for 18 months, you know. You go and you may be away training all week and you go home and stay with your family um, for one night or you go out for one night um, and maybe sleep through your alarm or your alarm breaks or you go and stay at someone else's house and you just forget. And it's it's super easy to update the system, but it's also super easy to forget. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that's just everyday life, isn't it, of, of an athlete, is that, you know, part of it is your re- reporting, but, you know, things happen, don't they? Of course. And and my understanding of it is that UK anti-doping go to the sport, in this case, British Judo, and they say, we want these people on testing, on whereabouts, um, and it becomes a bit of a negotiation at that time, because British judo presumably know their athletes a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I, don't get me wrong, I think this is the case. I was, I was never involved in these decisions, but this is part of a conversation. You want to be reliable British ones, judo go back. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I ended up being one of the reliable ones, but they do, they do, they, they pick more reliable athletes. And there's a few athletes that get specially requested um, and sometimes they get put on the whereabouts, but other times they don't because they might not be reliable enough. You know, they they might be seen as being, you know, they have they have quite hectic lifestyles, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I can imagine. Listen, um, as a home, I try to give a real strict process of elimination here of who would they expect to be on the whereabouts system and who would they not, and who do they think if they was um, in those negotiations, they'd be trying to keep off the whereabouts system and who would they want on it. Um, and I'm sure listeners at home are having a, a, a kind of coming to a, the same decisions of what we are. Um, as we, as we, as <laughs> well, clearly, talking about it like that, it's open to, you know, potential corruption, Absolutely. isn't it? You know, you, you, um, I think in the last six months before an Olympic Games, from, from memory, everybody in the team who who was selected for the Games... 
um, or would potentially be selected was on whereabouts. Um, if it's not the last six months, it's certainly like the last three or four. Yeah. But at that stage, everybody's on regardless of negotiation. Yeah. But which, which which is what you would hope for because you go into the Olympic Games, you want the highest level of availability, you want the highest level of threshold, and you want to have a clean team. Of course. Um, you want to have a, a clean games. You don't want to have what sadly we've had for the last few Olympic cycles in in other sports, not in judo, where um, a vast amount of medals have been stripped from Olympic medals. Well, do you know Dave Collins? Ah, oh, I yeah, I'm aware of him. He, is he a sports cycle? So Dave Collins uh, is a judo black belt. Um, he is a sports psych, well, world-renowned sports psych. He was also head of um, UK Athletics, so he's the performance director for UK Athletics, I think, before Charles Van Comene came in. Um, so I'm not sure when when that was, you know, kind of when this was bring yeah. Van Comene in was, but Dave Collins preceded um, Van Comene. Um, and ever so often, you know, you'll see, even now, Dave kind of going, oh, that's the uh, um, Olympic Games um, medal count for my team gone up to 13, or however many it is. You know, I don't know the figures. But you will see the team that he had, I think, in maybe 2004, um, has increased its medal count by maybe six or seven post-games. Um, oh, wow. So, like, Ke- Kelly Southerton has kind of received medals, and I think and um, Goldie uh, says the uh, javelin thrower. Uh, she javelin? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think has received men. I think, you know, these individual athletes oh. who have, um, I want to say posthumously, but that's not, that's not, that's after you're dead, isn't it? Well, so nobody's died. Um, but kind of after the event, but long after the event, people are being found to be drug streets. I would love to speak to Kelly Sullivan about this. Um, you know, she's, she was a phenomenal athlete in her own right and for a short while was the British heptathlete who didn't come away with an Olympic medal. You know, she was sandwiched between um, Denise Lewis and um, yeah, Jessica Ennis. Um, but subsequently, I think she's been upgraded to two medals. I think, yeah. Is that yeah, right? right? I think she's got two, two Olympic medals. One one for heptathlon and the other one was a relay, I want to say. But Maybe sure. long jump, perhaps. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Could be, yeah. Yeah, but she's, you know, from no Olympic medals to two, that's insane. I don't know any other athlete who's been affected to that extent. Imagine being deprived of your moment. That That's that was just crazy. Just devastating and I, I don't know how that would feel. You know, I can't, I can't imagine how that would feel to find out years later, to have it confirmed years later, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your what are your experiences of uh, well, antidoping? Fortunately, um, you know, or, or unfortunately, you know, I was never never privileged enough to be at the, the higher echelons where I need to be on a whereabouts system. Um, you know, some exposure to to drug, tre- drug testing, some interesting stories about drug testing in in Germany, where they have kind of ritual the beer. Um, to assist you urinate and kind of obviously the challenge there is, <laughs> is to be to hold your urine in as, as long as possible 
um, whilst drinking as many um, bottles of beer <laughs> yeah. as possible. And it's that balance between do I really need to urinate or can I squeeze another bottle of beer in after a tough tournament? Um, but other than that, I was uh, supported a, a player who actually failed a drug test um, down at King's College, London, um, within one of the um, UK anti-doping labs. Um, the, the, oh, wow. the failed drug test was in relation to um, salbutamol uh, inhaler, inhaler use. And this athlete um, was within judo and won the British Championships um, and failed the the, the urine test. And it wasn't by a significant amount, let me me be clear there. And essentially, this athlete had kind of come up above the the permitted use of of inhaler use, which I think was two puffs at the time. Um, I spent a, a full day testing with with, with this athlete. Um, we had a chaperone for the day, um, and also a uh, you know a, a, a medical guy, a, a boffin basically, um, who he headed up the um, OCOG and LOCOG um, anti-doping chambers. Um, you know, and they, this guy was a real phenomenal. Um, scientist really and it was describing you know processes in in other sports where people would would be testing and basically he was reassuring the athlete actually you know we're not overly concerned with you here um we want to know if you're taking your inhaler properly if you're using it in the right you the right way are you maximizing your inhaler use at the time um or actually are you abusing it to gain an advantage um you know, I think this athlete took four or six puffs rather than the, the two within the time permitted. Um, and under test conditions, um, it, it mirrored, his output mirrored um, what he had done. Um, essentially, it was an unintentional and ignorant, but, you know, that's no excuse, uh, and unaware of the of the permissions of salbutamol use. Um as an experience, quite terrifying for him, um, and quite, you know, kind of needed a, a support network to get him through at that, that period of time because he didn't know whether he would receive a ban or um, have medals. You know, the, the British Championship medals stripped from him. That didn't happen. Um, you know, fact. What was the outcome? Um, basically, it was a, a bit of a slap on the wrist and saying, "Just be careful of you." basically um you know some kind of no no strict sanction i think the the to be fair to you counted open they recognized what it was you know it was made a a mind you know on the grand scheme of things this wasn't a um a systemic abuse of doping over a period of time this is an athlete who took too many puffs of inhaler after his final match of the british championships Wow, so um, salbutamol obviously has a bit of a reputation at the moment. It's obviously it's the, the it is an asthma inhaler, and it's something you can get a TUE. TUE, yeah. Um, but it's it's also the uh, substance that Chris Froome um, is, I guess, in the dock for at the moment, and that's a I guess an ongoing case. You know, he's been allowed to compete while it's been investigated, but his salbutamol levels were apparently massively over the threshold that's set by um, by WADA. Um, 
So if you've heard of salbutamol before, that'll be why. But it is it is something that people are prescribed for for asthma, and I guess it would be really easy in those situations to to over um, over over prescribe yourself. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. Um, I'm trying to recall um, whether this athlete had his TUE in, TUE in place for salbutamol. Right. Um, and I almost want to say he didn't. I may be wrong. I, I want to say that he didn't. But once they could get that retrospectively verified, the, the concern was dropped, really. Um, okay. You know, it, I'd like to confirm that with you, to be honest, though, James. Um, it'd be unfair if I've just spoken out of, you know, with the thought that's in my head. But, um, yeah. I think the 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 TUE, whether it was in place or wasn't in place, I think in that athlete situation, it was just a, a misuse of his, of, his, of his prescribed inhaler. It was prescribed medication, and that was verified. Um, but what I suppose, when you're looking at cycling, um, and you're looking at the the money and the teams and the input and the investment around that, you know, it, it's wide open to corruption, isn't it? But the history of the sport as well. The history of the sport is one of, of doping, unfortunately, you know. Um Lance Armstrong being the most obvious Absolutely. example. Um but I think you're talking about someone who was only slightly over the threshold. Yeah. Yeah. Um the I think the Chris Fume Chris Froome case, and again he's appealing against the decisions. There's been no decision as of yet and he's been still being allowed to compete. But I think he was massively, massively over the limit. But I, think, I think the difficulty with it, James, is when Tyson Fury, okay, as an example, mm-hmm. the system, you know, you're counted up in, want to take Tyson Fury, um, want to ban him. So he appeals. And he ends up, he was able to negotiate the terms of his ban. Because... UK Antidoping didn't have the funding to go through his appeal because he looks to counter through them or looks to appeal to them for loss of earnings and he loses £30 million on a boxing match. They are not fit for purpose. They can't take him to court. And I would imagine... Wow, because they can't afford to. Because they can't afford to. Because they can't afford to. And I would imagine aspects such as um, the cycling teams will have some level of clout that matches that. Yeah. You know, so it's kind. Of... So how how do you how do you overcome that? Then? What's the answer? Legalise substance use. Oh wow! Okay. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I don't know. And I'm, I'm being I'm, ah. I'm being flippant there, but you know, if if the court systems. You know, if, if big businesses, Tyson Fury Enterprises, Team Sky, um, you know, Credit Lyonnais or whatever they're called, you know, Cart Postal, they've got big finances behind them to challenge yeah. and to keep, take it to the next state of step in legislation, to take it to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and then if there's a failure in procedure, to counterclaim. Okay. What What do you think? Well, um, 
I know that the traditional kind of education model is, in terms of anti-doping, is seen to to not be a success. Um, I think there's a lot of research going in now to to kind of change the 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 outlook of of that. So it's going to be about moral education, I think now, and and to see if that has any more success rather than just educating people about this idea of personal responsibility and what anti-doping is. Yeah, yeah I like that. We'll go down the, the affect route. So, um, oh, sorry, so this is um, kind of using affect theory, window of shame, kind of the affect yeah. of shame, and actually we can, that's your dimmer switch, you can turn it up and down, and actually the shameful aspects and happening to people's affections as opposed to this is right. No, exactly. Yeah, and there is, there's a lot of research going on at the moment um, in regard to that and to create a system, an education system that, that taps into that. Um, to be honest, I think the, I think an answer that would be a lot more effective is to impose a system of national bans and fines um, to the extent that if an athlete from a country fails a drugs test, you fine the nation, let's call it, a, let's call it a million a million dollars you know everyone everyone uses dollars you find the nation a million dollars and until they pay the fine they can't compete in that olympic cycle you know and the money from that fine goes directly to wada who then disperse it to the different anti-doping authorities around the world and i think that sorts out a couple of problems it means all of a sudden wada or ukad have money in the pot with which they can fight some of these legal cases, like a Chris Froome, like a Tyson Fury. No, I really like yeah. that as an approach. Um, I really like that as an approach. But when you look at... Oh, help me out. What's the documentary? Oh, um, Icarus. yeah. Icarus. Uh, Icarus. When you look at that being, you know, the, the AAA-rated WADA Russian outpost, and the money goes to them... They're just reinvest that into promoting drug into dope. promoting dope. Potentially, yeah. potentially it goes to a, a central wider then to the World Anti-Doping Organization. It's up to them to distribute it, not back to the national organization. I, I mean, it's not. I've come up with this oh, in I the like space it. of uh, 10, oh, 10 seconds. Know, I found the floor. Um, ten second plan. <laughs> Sorry about that, but <laughs> you know, but. In the case of a Russian system, they had so many athletes fail, so they would pay so much more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, potentially that means that the countries with better, well-off kind of Olympic associations or sports associations, potentially they're less impacted um, than countries who who don't put as much money into sport. But at the same time, it would certainly discourage nations from picking athletes they suspected of doping. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know. Um it's and it's that's it? potentially the level you yeah. I th- there's no perfect answer, but I do think that that does kind of solve a couple of problems because it does give the level of funding to the anti doping authorities and, and that's what they're missing. Yeah, yeah, they, they get a nominal fee. Yeah, they they miss that clout that means they can fight these cases that they can put into to 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 research. Um but hey, 
I know nothing. That that may well have been tried before. Um, oh, yeah. I really like the idea. I think we've got a lot of. Um, I think this conversation just highlighted where where we're at the history within judo, um, the prevalence of it, but also the kind of so many loopholes. Um, actually, there's no easy fix and there's no quick fix that's coming soon. Of course. Talking of loopholes, though, what do you think of the, the TUE? Which, if, if you don't know what that is, it's Therapeutic Use Exemption Certificate. Um, did you, I don't, don't know if you said that earlier, if, I, if I'm repeating I, what you I, said, I, Chris, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't um, you know, to be honest, I've forgotten what it was, what, what, I know exactly what it is, but I'd forgotten, I knew the therapeutic word, but I didn't think about the use exemption. Um, and it's, it's the, it kind of, it it's, sorry to interrupt again, it's this idea that you can, uh, if you have a medical condition, um, you can take your medicine for it. Um, and, Clearly, that's great because it means people can compete at a level playing field. Um, when you look at the Bradley Wiggins, this is where it goes, yeah. And it's kind of—is it open to abuse? So you know, I—I think, I think um, this is my view. Sport is about elite sport. It's about stealing that one percent, and if you can get that edge by sticking to the rules and try pressing yeah. as firm to the rules as you can possibly press to get that 0.1% of improvement to your system as a whole, they will do that on every area within medical, within tactical, within physical, within the technological. You know, you look at the look at the banks that Britain have had, you know, from Chris Boardman uh, with his helmet um, and his bike, you know, stealing that 0.1%, you know, why don't, why aren't they all allocated the same bike? You know, a yeah. factory fitted bike from whichever manufacturer sponsors the games or as we have in judo, a choice of four judo kits or five judo kits who subscribe to the IJS. You know, they're essentially constantly looking for the edge and if they can find an edge within the TUE they will use that what do you think so I know I think I think you're right I think I don't think that I don't think Bradley Wiggins was you know was cheating as such um, and it's all I guess suspected is it suspected yeah. alleged I don't know what they say alleged rather than um, cast iron um, but I do think he was and the team were potentially stretching the rules to their limit yeah. you yeah. know um, he had a TUE so it was within the rules allegedly and, and, so, and this is the thing isn't it is it to the letter of the law or to the nature of the law yeah you know or the spirit of the law you know, we put these rules in place in a certain spirit, but actually, when written down, it says something different. Um, and you do wonder that. Wiggins is interesting, actually. Um, his autobiography talks himself going on mad binges and stuff like that, and, you know, cocaine use, having to use rehab and stuff like that after his first Olympic medal. Not a bad wow. celebration, really, is, is the way he kind of put it. So, you know, he's quite <laughs> open about his substance misuse. Um Oh, not in not in um, performance enhancing terms. 
and back to those recreational players like Nick Dapopolo. Yeah, yeah. So, coming to the end, um, that's the question we asked at the start. Does judo have a problem with doping? To me, on the surface, no, it doesn't. Uh, it's core, no, it doesn't. But certainly swimming around the edges, for me, doping is a high risk within judo. What about yourself? Uh, I think there needs to be more transparency within the sport, you know. Again, similar to the Meldonium situation, it's it would have been a group of athletes who had TUEs to use Meldonium, regardless of whether or not they, they needed Meldonium, um, which is the drug Sharapova was using. They were... They had played the system, if you will, to the point where the rules were virtually breaking and when they changed the rules, they were breaking the rules. But I think you need a bit more transparency. Um, and WADA or UK anti-doping or the individual anti-doping, they need more power in terms and more support in terms of um, kind of implementing bans and and that kind of thing. Totally agree. Yeah. yeah. The, the the enforcement systems need the robust systems to, to support them, don't they? Definitely. Definitely. Boom. Solve doping. We've solved doping. Not bad. Well, well they just come to us. Stick to the original Judo <laughs> podcast if you want to know how to fix doping. Or do <laughs> doping. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we did go off on a bit of a tangent there for a, uh, a second. Um... Chris, thank you very much, mate. Great stuff. Really enjoyed today. Thanks very much, Dan. So that's the show. Hope you enjoyed it. As ever, you can get in touch and let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter and Facebook. It's at Original Judo Pod. Thanks to Chris for getting involved. I am sorry it's taken so long to bring this one out. Catch you soon. <laughs>